Uh, Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. More than anything, God, today, I thank you for how your goodness and grace have been poured through the lives of these adults and children and teens that we've seen declare their faith through baptism. And God, I pray for us now that as we turn to your word and, and try to understand a bit about how you move and breathe and act in people's lives and, and what transformation then entails, I pray, God, that you give us wisdom and understanding and that you might help us, Lord, to understand how you move in people's lives and even what's happening in those around us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's what I want to throw by you, and it's what I, I threw by you guys a couple of years ago, but I want to flesh it out even more and still. And it's something that hit me a few years back, probably about a decade ago, as I was watching baptism and thinking about just God and how he changes people's lives. And here's the thought that hit me. Look up here on the screen, and that is that all good people, and I put good in quotes, do not necessarily become Christians while all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers. Let me repeat that. You might not get it right away, but you will in about five or ten minutes. Uh, all good people, good by the world standards, by the way, do not necessarily become Christians, while all the bad people around us do not necessarily stay unbelievers. And, and folks, I think there's something in this that is so key to how God works in our lives and works in this world, how he transforms people, that it's important for you and I to realize this. Because you see the statement that you see on the screen there, I believe is both thoroughly biblical and hence true, and quite frankly, it deals a death blow to a myth that many well-meaning Christians believe today, and it's a myth that I hear all the time from Christians, and, and you've heard it too. It goes something like this. We see a relatively good person around us, a person that compared to the bad people around us is relatively moral, pretty decent, and at least by culture standards, are, are relatively responsible. And we see a person like that who's doing fairly well in our culture today, but there's only one problem, they're not yet Christians, but because they're good and because they're moral, we find ourselves saying, so-and-so is so close to becoming a Christian. Have you ever found yourself saying that or heard somebody say that? You see a moral person, they seem to have their act together, except they don't quite have Jesus yet, so you say they're really close to becoming a Christian. And then conversely, we find ourselves then seeing a bad person around us. We all have them in our lives. A person who is manipulative, dishonest, greedy, even hateful and full of pride. And we tend to think then, man, is that person ever far away from becoming a Christian? Like outside of a miracle. There is no way he or she is ever going to come over to God's side. I hear Christians say that a lot. I'll say, tell me about so-and-so. And they'll say, ah, so-and-so is really far away from God. Why do you think that? Well, it's because of the behavior that they're demonstrating right now. Whereas so-and-so seems like they're really close because they tend to have better behavior. And what you need to know, folks, is that from a biblical standpoint, not only is this not necessarily so, Many times, it's not the case at all. I mean, it's just not the case that because someone has achieved the status of becoming a good person this side of heaven, using their own strength and ingenuity to make life work, we saw that in the baptismal tank this morning, just because somebody has done that does not necessarily mean 
that they're really close to becoming a follower of God in Christ. And conversely, just because somebody up to this point in life has made a lot of sinful choices, that does not mean that he or she is a grand canyon away from entering the kingdom of God. Because you see, there's two realities going on here behind the scenes with God and his people that I think Christians need to realize. Two realities that will help blow away this myth so that you and I can fully understand what's going on when God decides to change people. And here's the first reality. Look up here on the screen. And that is that many seemingly bad people are actually closer to the kingdom than many seemingly good people. I know that sounds almost scandalous for some of you good church people, but I'm telling you, a plain reading of the New Testament tells us this, that in the New Testament we see all kinds of people that rub shoulders with Jesus and experience life change, and many of them, by the world standard, were not good people, but they were very, very close to becoming Christians. So consider Matthew the tax collector. I mean, back in that culture, Matthew was on par with probably the most seedy and dishonest business person that you can think of today, like think of Tony Soprano or Michael Corleone. And he's sitting at his tax collecting booth being very bad. And you got to believe that Peter and Andrew and James and John, who were the disciples up to that point, were thinking to themselves, what a waste of human flesh. I mean, what a sinner this guy is. Let's move on quickly, Jesus, and try to find some real disciples. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in that setting, calls Matthew to come and follow him to become a disciple, and Matthew does. And he goes from being a really bad person to becoming a really good person literally overnight. Matthew follows Jesus and becomes one of the 12 disciples. Or how about the woman at the well? A Samaritan woman, not exactly the most prestigious ethnic line in all of Palestine. She's been married five times. She's giving like Elizabeth Taylor a run for her money. And Jesus dialogues with her up to the point that she is totally blown away, drawn to him, and challenged about the kingdom of God. The insinuation being that her life is going to be different from this point. Or how about the woman caught in adultery? Like one of the big ten. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And this woman is caught in the act. They drag her to Jesus. They ask Jesus what he's going to do about it. And Jesus forgives her on the spot, challenges anybody else to think otherwise, and tells her to go and sin no more, and she's changed. She's transformed. Or probably the most powerful example in all of the New Testament, think of Saul the Pharisee who was persecuting Christians. He presided over the stoning of Stephen. And then he starts to go to Damascus to find more Christians to persecute. And I'm telling you, if somebody had said, you know, Paul's go, or Saul's going to Damascus, and guess what? In about five minutes, he's going to be a Christian. Nobody would have believed it. They would have used the logic we use today, and they would have said, he can't become a Christian. He's not a good person. He can't become a Christian. He's a really bad person. But God, you see, who's in the transformation business, had other plans. And Saul, on the road to Damascus, becomes Paul as he becomes a follower of the risen Christ. Bad people in the world's eyes, who in God's eyes, are a gnat's eyelash away from coming into the kingdom. One confession away 
from entering into a life-transforming relationship with God. Many seemingly bad people in the Bible are closer to the kingdom than, quite frankly, many seemingly good people. This is why you have the story of the rich young ruler who readily admits to keeping all of the Ten Commandments, all of his conscious life, uh, but then when he's confronted by Jesus to the same call to complete surrender that Jesus gave to Matthew, he walks away sad, this rich young ruler does. Because the Bible says he was completely unwilling to surrender himself, even though he had lived a pretty moral life. So you got a seemingly good person in the eyes of the world who in his heart of hearts is very, very far from God, having allowed his supposed righteousness to blind him to the truth of God's claim on his life. Are you starting to see? This is why I say all good people do not necessarily become Christians and all bad people do not necessarily stay unbelievers. Because many seemingly bad people, and I'll share why I think this is in a minute, are actually closer to the kingdom of God than many seemingly good people. I figured this out early on when I became a Christian. As many of you know, I became a Christian back in 1981, 1982, somewhere around there, and I went off to college. And when I was in college, I quickly started to get involved with lots of different people sharing my newfound faith with them. And I'll never forget one guy that was in a fraternity that I was in named Mark. And Mark was one of these guys that was just really moral. He didn't drink like all the other animals in my fraternity. He didn't chase women. He, he, he went to his religious observance every once in a while. But he wasn't necessarily a Christian. He wasn't like an ardent follower of Jesus. He just dabbled in the religious life and lived a pretty moral life. And again, being relatively new to the faith, I thought to myself, this dude's got to be close to the kingdom. Like, he's really close. He's got the morality thing down, and he's really nice, and he goes to religious observances. But for four years, I tried to share with him about a life in Christ and knowing Jesus Christ, and nothing. That deer-in-the-headlights look, he would not budge he, he was just dug in in his own morality, saying, I can just do fine myself. And though everybody else saw him as a good person, he was so distant from a relationship with God. And then I got to Detroit for my first pastorate, and I'll never forget meeting a guy named Bill. I was restoring one of my old cars. You guys know I like cars. I was restoring a Fiat, and I, and I didn't know how to deal mechanically with this Fiat. And I needed to change the ball joints and the tie rods, for those of you who care. And there was a guy down the road named Bill who, who knew how to do that. He knew how to take a pickle fork and take off the tie rods and the ball joints. So he's helping me do this. And I figured this was a great chance to share my faith with Bill. Bill never went to church. He's this old blue-collar, tough guy. And, and so one day he was sitting out under my Fiat, and I was watching him take off the ball joints. And I said to him, I said, hey, you know, um, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. That was my lead-in back then. I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And I'll never forget, he came rolling out from under the car, and he stood up, and he said, I do not want to talk to you about Jesus or anything religious. I'm helping you with the car. Get out of my face. Is that a No. I thought, okay, I understand that. He wanted nothing to do with the kid. And this guy was a mess. I mean, he was drinking too much. He was my age. He's trying to, to raise his kids. And, you know, one day he told me, he said, you know, the best way to raise kids is when they mouth off, smack them in the face. He said, that's what you do. And I remember thinking, well, you're, you're not like the next James Dobson. That's obvious. I'm like, you know, and, and it just the guy was a mess. 
And again, after we got done with my fiat and I did try to talk to him more about my faith, he still didn't want anything to do with it. I was tempted to say to myself, this guy's very, very far from the kingdom of God. One year later, I was in church and Bill came up to me and he had a tear in his eye and he said, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ and I can't thank you enough for trying to share with me even though I didn't want to hear it. And he went on to tell me this amazing story of life change. He was not nearly as far as I thought he was. But my friend Mark, I've called him since college and he still isn't on fire about Jesus Christ. I love how Jesus taught this to us straight up in a profound altercation with some of the religious leaders of his day. Look at Matthew 21, verses 28 to 31. This is great. Look up here on the screen. Jesus says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Jesus then asked, which of the two did the will of his father? They, the religious leaders, said the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You know, people read this story. I don't think they know how to make sense of it. You know, we all talk about Jesus' 40-plus parables. That's not one I hear referenced very often. How about you? I I don't hear people reference this one because I don't think they get it. You see, here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think Jesus is saying is that there are some good people, good in the eyes of the world, the Pharisees, who say that they will go and work in the vineyard, but they don't. They put on a good show. They're kind of religious. They're even moral, but they really don't have a life-giving relationship with God. They never become Christians, to use our terminology. And then there are bad people who say that they won't go and work in the vineyard. They're the rebellious ones among us. But at the end of the day, they do. And at a key time in their lives, in a moment of decision and life change, like my friend Bill, they make a move toward God through faith in his son Jesus Christ. And in the midst of their messed up, sin-ridden lives, God accepts them and begins changing them. See, that's the scandal of grace, as Chuck Swindoll calls it. It's what the kingdom is about. You and I tend to judge who's close and who's not. And I think God laughs at that and says, you don't get it. I'm in the business of changing lives from the inside out through my son, Jesus Christ. And there's lots of people out there that I'm going to work on. And I'm going to stun you with who I decide to bring into the kingdom and who might just dig their heels in for a long time. And some of you are asking at this point, well, how can this be? I mean, how can you have someone living a moral and responsible life, which obviously God would want because he's a God of righteousness and justice, but this person is not close to becoming a Christian. But then you got somebody who's living like with the shadiness of Ken Lay or the rebellion of Howard Stern or the immorality of Mick Jagger. You knew I'd mention him again. And, and have that person be as you say, Jamie, and Nat's eyelash away from the kingdom. How can that be? And that doesn't sound right. And it's a great question. And it brings us to the second key reality that you and I need to understand about what God says about this world and those in it and how change happens. And this is the one that might bring it all together for you. And it's simply this. Look up here on the screen. Our human classifications of good and bad 
are based on our perceptions. But God's goes to the heart. You see, you and I are really good at judging those around us, but let's face it, we can only judge people by either what we see or by what they tell us is going on in their heart, right? I mean, it's a very, very limited judgment. But God says, I see it all. I see what's going on in somebody's motives and their thoughts and their experiences and their background, and I'm in control of all of it. And so there's stuff going on in somebody's life that you got no clue about because all you're seeing is what they show you or at best what they tell you about what's going on on the inside. One of my favorite all-time passages in the Bible, it's actually shared between my wife and I as one of our favorite, is a passage tucked away in the Old Testament. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The situation here is that Saul is losing his grip on being Israel's king. Everybody knows that his days are short. Samuel, the prophet, is directed by God to go to Bethlehem to the family of Jesse. And in this family, where there are eight sons, God says, I'm going to choose the next king. And so Samuel goes to Bethlehem, finds Jesse and his boys, and they get to the first son named Eliab. And Samuel takes one look at him, and again, it's just like we would do today. And he says, this has got to be the guy. He's big, he's strong, he's good-looking, he's sharp, he's very kingly. This must be our next king. And in reading Samuel's mind, look at what God says to Samuel right at this point in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him as king. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And at this point, in going through six more brothers, all of whom God has not chosen as king, they finally get to the youngest, the runt of the litter, and it's King David, and God says, this is he. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There it is. That's why our main point today is true. Because you see, you and I, at best, can judge people by what we see in their behavior or maybe in what they tell us about their motives. But you see, the falsity in that is that even a lot of people you know don't even know themselves very well. There's a lot of people that are doing very bad things out there right now because of guilt and shame and they're stuck and they're crying out in their heart of hearts and they don't even know it. They're crying out saying, I wish I had peace. I wish I had joy. I wish I had contentment. I wish I had relationship. We saw that in the baptisms today. People taking long walks as adults here in Scottsdale. And everything looks great on the outside. But on the inside, where things matter most, there's loneliness, there's depression, there's anxiety, there's lack of contentment. All the things that a relationship with Jesus Christ wants to bring into their lives. And God sees it. The only problem is you don't see it. And that's why, by the way, maybe now you can see that there can be a Matthew the tax collector or a five times divorced woman or an adulterer or even somebody who hates Christianity and doesn't mind acting on it, 
But maybe they're this way because of deep hurt or chronic insecurity or a bad upbringing or deep-seated fear. And maybe they feel guilt and shame and brokenness, but they're never going to let you know it. But because God sees it, and he's dealing with all of his humanity, they're pretty close to becoming Christians. And the opposite is also true. you got people out there today that are as squeaky clean as Mother Teresa, but they're just rich young rulers in modern-day garb. They inwardly cling to their pride and to their money, their success, and their self-sufficiency, and they mask it so well. And God, who sees this, says, they're not very close to me right now, but I'm still working on them. You see, God sees the heart. We don't. And so God knows what's going on with each one in his creation and what he's doing with them. And before we wrap this up, don't get me wrong here. I don't want to be misunderstood. As much as I say that every good person is not necessarily close to becoming a Christian and every bad person is not necessarily going to stay an unbeliever all of his or her life, I'm not saying that there aren't outwardly good people who are going to come to Christ or that there aren't outwardly bad people who are going to remain far away. Of course there are. My point is just trying to tell us to stop judging and guessing. I mean, in the Bible, James and John were pretty good men when Jesus called them into his kingdom. And so were Peter and Andrew. Timothy, we know, grew up a religious mama's boy and became a great follower of Jesus. So you've got great examples of people in the Bible that led pretty moral lives and then became Christians. And then you got Pharaoh, who was bad and remained bad all of his life. And the point in all of this is simple. The kingdom of God is an incredibly mixed bag. Amen? It's an incredibly mixed bag. It's made up of Matthews and Saul's and women who have made a lot of mistakes and people who have just not been good at obeying the ten basic commandments. And then it's also made up of lots of Timothys who have simply grown up in pretty moral homes and have now entered into a relationship with Christ. And what this understanding does, and this is my only hope in sharing this with you today, is that this gives great hope for everybody around you. It gives great hope for your neighbor who doesn't go to church or that hateful family member that drives you crazy. This gives great hope for your kid who you took to Sunday school all his or her life and now in their 20s they don't want anything to do with Jesus. This gives great hope for your successful business partner, your rich uncle, or how about your even very moral but not very Christian grandmother. You see, this gives hope for everybody. And it tells you and I to stop trying to be God and guess who's next. It tells you and I to treat everybody the same. To realize that God is on the move all the time in the people around you and he wants to use you. And he's on the move. And what you and I are supposed to do, now don't miss this, because with this we're done, is that we are to show love and share truth with everybody around us. Not be a respecter of persons, but from our friends to our family members to service providers to people we meet on airplanes, we're to show the same love, grace, and truth to everybody around us. And as I said earlier, when you do that, get ready to be stunned as to what God, do, as to what God does. C.S. Lewis calls it being surprised by joy as you realize that there are certain people around you that are so very, very close so you don't see it 
And then disappointingly, there's those around you that you think are really close and they're going to continue to dig their heels in. But make no mistake, God is working on all of his people all of the time. And so this week, don't try to guess who is close and who is not. I think this just promotes judgmentalism. Take each person as they come. Take each one as made in God's image and deserving of love and truth. And then let God sort it out. And as he does, enjoy the journey. I'm going to pray right now as our ushers come forward for our elder fund offering. And so as they do that right now, why don't you pray for us? Troy's going to lead us in one more song of worship. And then out to our Cactus Campus and venues, they got a worship song too. And then we're going to let you go. So why don't you bow with me right now and let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our merciful God, we thank you for what you are up to in this world and the lives of so many around us. And God, it's easy and tempting to want to judge who's close and who's not, who's in and who's not. But at the end of the day, God, salvation is such a personal experience. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ will not be a small group event, but it'll be something that we each have to go to individually. And Lord, that's such a precious thing because you are constantly working in each one uh, to call and to woo. And Lord, we just don't know. But Lord, it's quite a ride when we see you turn a Saul into a Paul, or when we see you turn a Matthew the tax collector into a disciple, or when we see you take a Timothy who was pretty religious and now give him relationship with the risen Christ. It's amazing, Lord, to see those stories and to celebrate those in our lives through baptism and other things. And so, Father, I pray that as we um, work in our lives toward just letting you be you and letting you work in people as you see fit, that, God, we would get out of the way, be used by you as you want to use us, and then just be in amazed awe at what you do. God, as you know, we're trying to be a church that has a bit more intentional outreach when it comes to sharing your love with those around us because Scottsdale so desperately needs to hear, and so does Phoenix. And so we pray, God, that as we each are more attuned this week to what you're doing in the lives of those around us, may you use us in the lives of those around us to share love, to share truth, to share grace, and to watch you move in people's lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.